I want to read uh, Acts chapter 18 and the first 18 verses together. I'm going to read it in the New King James Version, and uh, be awesome if you could follow along with me. Now, this chapter, this passage is uh, a perfect example of why it's helpful to have the maps, because there's a lot of place names, a lot of people names, a lot of stuff going on. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 in the New King James Version says this, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the Roman emperor Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. So I think in the first like two verses, there's like six locations. It's just, there's a lot going on. Uh, so again, I'll make a plug for the maps. Verse 3, so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, so previous to this, when Paul first arrives in Corinth, Silas and Timothy are not with him. They've been left behind in another location. He's on his own. He gets to Corinth. It's just him. But eventually, verse 5 says, Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia when Paul and Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. As Paul is entire I read that and I really get the sense that this is Paul uh, having a moment where he just says, I've had enough. You ever had one of those moments? This feels like Paul. I don't think he loses control, but I think he just says, that this is an, enough. I'm going, you, y'all, I've given you everything. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Galio was proconsul of Acacia... The Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, Look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. So in essence, this, this proconsul of Rome, he says, this sounds like something that's just got to do with your own Jewish laws. It doesn't have anything to do with Roman laws. I'm not going to rule on this because this isn't my jurisdiction. I don't care to get involved. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. So Paul remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria with Priscilla and Aquila. Were, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sanctria, for he had taken a vow. I want to talk tonight about reaching our city for Jesus. And I want to do it kind of under this category, under this banner. A friend, a word, and a haircut. A friend, a word, and a haircut. Book of Acts, if you've never really took time to study it, you may have noticed in the past few weeks as we've read it together that the book of Acts gives us uh, patterns and principles for apostolic life and ministry. And in this chapter, we see some patterns and principles that the Apostle Paul is putting into practice, but the location's been different than anything we've read before in the book of Acts. It's a brand new setting. It's a city called Corinth. So I want to talk about Corinth for just a moment. Verse 1 says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. So first I want to talk about Corinth, and then I want to talk about these things. It says after these things. So uh, commercial major trading route, 
it, it, it had the hustle and the bustle of commerce. That's the kind of city that Corinth was. On Sunday, I preached a little bit about a town called Lystra. Lystra was kind of a backwater frontier type town. It was more inland. And when you're living on the Mediterranean, if you want the hustle and bustle of commerce, you better be on the water's edge. And that's the kind of town that Corinth was. It was close to the water and it had the opportunity to do a lot of business. It was known for luxury. There was a lot of goods. There was access to a lot of things that flowed in from all over the known world. They had African things. They had Asian things. They had European things. They had things flowing from all corners of the globe. And so there was a luxury type of atmosphere in Corinth just because of how much of a commercial city it was. But morally, morally, Corinth had a reputation. It was a city that promoted the lack of sexual boundaries. That's the kind of city that Corinth was. If there was, there was even a word in those days, in the days before Paul and in the days after, and they turned it into a verb. They'd actually uh, created a new word to describe as a shorthand way of describing immoral sexual activity. They would say that it was to play the Corinthian. It's not a very good reputation. It's not a very good reputation for a person. It's not a very good reputation for a city. But that's the kind of reputation that morally the city of Corinth had. And uh, Corinth was full of sensuality. And it was abounding in immorality. That's the kind of setting that Paul walked into when he walked about the 50 miles from, from Athens to Corinth. He walked into a city that was known for its uh, lack of sexual boundaries, its promotion of sensuality, and just immorality in general. That's the kind of place that Corinth was. And it says that after these things, Paul walked into Corinth. So you have to read chapter 17 to know what after these things is about. In chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. He's uh, preaching to the philosophers and, and talking to them. And he really doesn't get very much. We have a lot of record of what happened in Athens. We know what Paul said when he was in Athens. We know what he said when he was on Mars Hill in Athens. It's very interesting. And... Uh, I know he had some success there, but he didn't have nearly the amount of success that he expected to have, that he wanted to have. And so Paul leaves Athens, and he's walking that 50-mile journey to Corinth, and he's, he's discouraged. He's, he's, he, he's not exactly uh, on a winning streak right now. He's just left Athens. Athens is one of those places where uh, they're a very intellectual city, and they love to hear new things, collect ideas and ideologies, and they'll ex be accepting of all of them. And it's the kind of place where he didn't really find a lot of people, Sister Violet, that were willing to make a decision that Jesus was the only way. They would hear about Jesus, but they would just kind of accumulate Jesus into their uh, little storehouse of ideas and philosophies and then move on. And Paul was kind of discouraged by that. And he, uh, he, he wasn't with his normal co-workers, Silas and Timothy. They were still back in Macedonia. And they hadn't caught up with Paul, and he was alone for the time being. And it says in verse 2 that he found some friends. He found some friends. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come to Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them, and because they were of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. This is a man, Paul, that is in need of friends. We all need friends. We all need friends. No matter how much of a lone wolf you may think you are, no matter how tough you think you are, we all need, we can trust with our confidence. We all need people that are going the same direction as us. And here, Paul is in need of a friend. He really needs to see a friendly face. And he gets to Corinth and he finds a couple new friends. And it's a husband and wife, they're tent makers by trade. And it looks like, from the rest of the New Testament, where these people show up in a couple of other places, it looks like Priscilla and Aquila have a tent-making enterprise that has a few different branches in other cities. It looks like they might have a branch, they may have had a branch in Rome, it looks like they might have a branch in Ephesus eventually, uh, they certainly have a branch here in Corinth. So they were, they were doing well, and Paul was actually a tent-maker himself, he was one of the most educated people, he received the highest level of education that you could get back then. He was, he was educated to be a rabbi, but he had training as a tent maker. 
Because back in those days, the Jewish families made sure that their sons had a skill, something that they would be able to carry out, and if they couldn't do anything else, they could at least make a living doing this, and that was what Paul, it was almost like the Lord had set up this connection. Isn't that what the Lord does with our friends sometimes? He gave them a connection with Priscilla and Aquila. It wasn't just that they were Jews who happened to also be Christians, Uh, that had just left from Rome and were recently themselves recently moved into Corinth and maybe they themselves hadn't made a lot of friends yet either. But they also happened to be tent makers, the same occupation as Paul. So it was a match made in heaven. They, They just became fast friends and they remained friends for Paul's entire life. Friendship is really a special thing and I don't want you to think I'm getting mushy uh, this Wednesday night, but friendship is really a special thing. It elevates our humanity. Um, there's a book called The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Um, it's, a very good, it's a very good book. Uh, it talks about the different kinds of love, and one of the kinds of love that Paul talks about, or that C.S. Lewis talks about, is friendship. Uh, friendship's a special kind of affection that people have for one another. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, in that book, he said the typical expression of opening a friendship would be something like, what? You too. I thought I was the only one. That must have been what Paul felt whenever he met Priscilla and Aquila. He must have stumbled. He must have just been walking through the marketplace, acquainting himself with this new city. And he said, hey, some tent makers. I'm a tent maker. I'm going to go see. I, I, I know something about this. So he walks in. He strikes up a conversation. He starts finding out who they are. And he's like, well, my lands. And he walks out of that shop. And by the time he walks out, he's got two new friends just like God. He said, I thought I was the only one that was new in town. I thought I was the only Christian in town. I thought, I didn't know if there would be any tent makers in this town. But lo and behold, he finds these people, they check all the boxes and boom, they're friends. That's what friendship is like sometimes. Pretty, pretty neat. Having friends has never been easy. Uh, Sometimes even when God puts someone in our path and and we seem to have a a connection or maybe we go way back with somebody, it's never easy. I mean, the older we get, the busier we get, the more obligations we have. It, it takes work to be a friend. It takes work to have a friend. And uh, in a world where we have so much time we spend on digital devices and our calendars just get crammed so full of stuff and we overstretch ourselves with financial obligations so that we have to work so many hours to make those ends meet, who has time for real friends? We better have time for real friends. Because we need friends. We need friends. I want to tell you a few things about friendship. This isn't me being a guru. This is just observation. Um, I'm all about bearing with one another and having some toughness about our relationship where we just kind of are patient with one another and we don't just check out on each other. But let me tell somebody today, maybe that you just need to hear what I'm fixing to say. Uh, Don't feel like you have to be that friend who always carries the whole relationship. Don't feel like you have to go on your whole life like that. Now, I, I, you already heard me say, we, we definitely need to bear with one another and be patient with one another, and there's a place and a time for that. But don't allow, you don't have to allow yourself to be taken advantage of in all of your friendships. Those aren't friendships. Don't make a hasty move on something like this. I'm not telling you, ah, you know, you need to cut out all your friends and just start over because they're all a bunch of deadbeats and they don't like you anyways rude like that to make it a matter of prayer absolutely but if there's a relationship or two in your life that's just not healthy maybe even toxic it's okay it's all right it's it's all right it's all right don't be rude don't be a jerk you know don't don't do it mean-spirited but it's okay you know find better friends my lands you've only got bandwidth for so many you can't have a hundred friends right so make the friends that you do have make sure make them actually your friends Okay, um, George Washington said it's, it's, it's better to be alone than to be in bad company. The Bible says it too, by the way. That wasn't just George Washington. The Bible says, uh, Paul says, stop being deceived. Bad companionship corrupts good character. Wicked friends lead to evil ends is the way that another translation said it. Another thing, be selective about the friends you do make. Be selective about the friends you make. Because here, you've heard me say it before. You've probably heard other people say it before because I didn't make it up. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. There's some truth to that. Make sure you're selective in that. Make sure you're, 
it's important that your friends have the same values as you and that those values are good things, the right things. I'm talking about having godly friends. I'll pull another C.S. Lewis quote. I think I have a, a slide for it. He, he said this. This is the difference between friendship and everything else. Love friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face -face absorbed in each other. They're, they're just all locked in love, 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 love. Friendship, however, friends are side by side, absorbed in the same interests. They're going after the same thing. That's what's so special about friendship. It's not about the other person. It's about what you're both interested in. We need that. We need that kind of relationship. And we, need to, we, we must be selective about the people we allow into our life because if you have somebody that is a friend who has a strong influence with you and they're interested over here, they have a strong interest in this thing that you shouldn't be interested in at all, guess what you're going to get pulled into? You're going to get pulled over here and all of a sudden you're going to be shoulder to shoulder with this person and you're going to be interested in this thing that is either sinful or just nonsense. Be selective. Another thing, I, 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 can't go, I can't go without saying this. By all means, be a good friend. Be a good friend. You don't have to be a good close friend to everybody, and you shouldn't even really try. But be kind to everybody and be a good friend to some. Okay? I already acknowledged we have a bandwidth. We can't be like everyone's best friend. That's just not possible. But the people that you are friends with, be a good friend. Be the kind of friend that you want to have. Make time for them. Listen to them. Sacrifice. Be interested in things that are edifying to both of you. Eternal things. The Bible said, to use some of the Bible language, spur them onward to good works. Honor them. Pray for them. You said it, Brother Walker, and let them know about it. Pray for them and send them a message and let them know about it. Not that isn't you just, you know, beating your chest or patting yourself on the back. Let them know if, if they're really your friend. Hey, I know you got this going on. Praying for you. Love you. Let me know if I can do anything for you. Make sure they know it. Say the words. Say the words. It costs you nothing. It costs you nothing. Be a good friend. Last thing I'll say about friendship before I move on. Make Jesus your best friend. This is what carried Paul. You know why Paul hadn't given up already? He just had a, he, I mean, he's getting beaten this town. He's getting chased out of town in this other city. These, these Athenians are like just ignoring him. They're just like, hey, who's this guy? He talks funny. Why hasn't Paul already given up? He doesn't have Silas and Timothy with, with him. But somehow he manages to get himself to Corinth, and he's going to continue the work. How does Paul do it? It's because he has a relationship with Jesus Christ that is more than just a vending machine type relationship. He's his friend. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24 in the Amplified Version says this, A man of too many friends, chosen indiscriminately, will be broken in pieces and come to ruin. But there is a true loving friend who is reliable and sticks closer than a brother. Friendship is important, if for no other reason than what I'm about to say out of the book of Leviticus. It says five of you can chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will put ten thousand to flight. We need each other. We can do more together than we can separately. You can, do, you can live a better life that is more pleasing to God and more effective for the kingdom by having friends who have the same interests and the same minds. Paul's testimony of what Priscilla and Aquila meant to him wouldn't really, wouldn't really come out in full until years later when Paul would write the letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 16 and verse 3, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Those are friends. And don't think Paul's using a figure of speech. They probably literally risked their lives for one another. Those are true friends. We all want those kind of friends. We need to be those kind of friends too. You missed it, I'm sorry. Uh, but if you were here, Bishop talked about uh, what the future is going to look like when persecution comes. And I'm just here to tell you, in times of persecution, I hope you have some friends.
I'm not just talking about a church family. That's, that's important. I'm talking about, I hope you've put the time in with, with your people. I hope you haven't written them. I, I just hope because in those times, we need one another. We really find out. Paul had been through some of those times, and he had a couple that he knew he could count on. Their names were Priscilla and Aquila. Whether you think so or not, you need godly friends. A friend and a word. A word. There was another friend that he made. There's a guy named Justice. They must have been friends on some level. Because after Paul did that thing where he shook his garments and said, enough is enough. I'm done with y'all. I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles. He moves his base of operations out of the synagogue. That was his custom. If there was a synagogue, he based out of the synagogue. He'd had enough. So he moved out of the synagogue, and there was a guy that lived next door to the, like literally next door to the synagogue. His name was Justice. And he said, Justice, I'm going to... Can I come and start using your house as my headquarters for ministry? And just like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And so they, they move their base of operations, and they start doing ministry out of Justice's house. And it says that uh, he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now, the reason he had to do that is what I want to talk about for a few minutes. There's one thing that you don't need to fool around with, and it's indifference. Indifference is very dangerous. I know when we say it out loud, it doesn't sound like it has, you know, claws and, and tentacles and stuff like that. It doesn't sound real scary like some big monster, but I'm here to tell you, indifference is, is very damaging spiritually. Paul found indifference in the synagogue. They were not receptive to the message of Jesus. They were not receptive to the ministry that he was doing. And so he, he shook his garments. I said, enough is enough. I'm done with y'all. I'm going to go preach and minister to the Gentiles. Did you know that it was indifference that caused Jesus to shake the dust off of his feet? Matthew chapter 10, he told his disciples, whoever will not receive you or hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off from your feet. Even Paul, this wasn't the first time Paul had to do this because if you remember in Acts chapter 13, he says they shook the dust off from their feet against them and came to Iconium. That was in Syrian Antioch. They were in Syrian Antioch, met the same kind of indifference, shook the dust off their feet and said, we're going on to the next town because they were indifferent towards the message. Yeah. I don't know if we have uh, an action like that that is symbolic, like they would have symbolically shook the dust off their feet, scraped the dust off their feet. They probably literally did it. It was a custom, a Jewish custom. Paul shook his garments out. I think it was a Jewish kind of custom. I don't think we have an equivalent to that in the West. Um, I think our equivalent would probably be just to say we move on. We're kind. We don't... We... we might. It might be something as simple as us saying, you know what, it appears that this might not be the time that you don't think this is the time to have this conversation. I'm going to move on, and when it is time, you have my number you know where to find me, you know? I mean, I, I think it's kind of a formal breaking off of, you know, it's been real. Uh, I want to be kind, but I also want to be clear. And, you know, I think, I think that's probably the equivalent that we would have. I think when they did this sort of thing, there was no ambiguity as to where everybody stood. And I think that's probably, if we were to do something similar, we would be aiming for being unambiguous about where we felt like the relationship was, but being kind at the same time and not completely burning the bridge. And by not completely burning the bridge, I want to point out that even though apparently there was a lot of indifference in this synagogue and in, this, in, in what Paul was attempting to do when he moved next door to Justice's house, it says that he won Crispus. 
the chief ruler of the synagogue. Like, it's the same kind of guy that, like, Nicodemus would have been in John chapter. He was like a high-ranking official, the leader of the synagogue. So apparently, Paul didn't do anything nasty that was a turnoff to everybody because he went next door, carried on the same ministry, and in a short amount of time, won the leader of the synagogue. So I don't think he burned a bridge because apparently someone was still attracted to the message uh, enough to break away from the synagogue and come to Paul, which is what Crispus did. Um, indifference is dangerous. And, and I'm, I'm pausing here to, to, to make the point that we can't allow that to get in our system. We, we need to know how to respond to it when we, come, when we come up on it because it can be a tremendous waste of our time. I hate to just say that, but it can, it can really drain our time and our energy. And I think that's what Paul was feeling like. He felt like, I'm not getting anywhere here. And so we need to know how to identify it when it's happening and also how to break away and, and have a little bit of grace in doing so. Um, so we need to be able to identify indifference. We also need to make sure that indifference never creeps in on us. You said, Brother Dustin, how could, you know, I mean, we're sanctified, saved people of the name. We, we have to be on guard for indifference. Jesus wrote a letter to the church in Revelation chapter 3. One of the churches, he says, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's indifference. That's indifference. Um, we, we shouldn't, if, if we find ourselves at the place where we are unmoved by the word, unmoved by worship, unmoved by the lost, we need to get a little closer to the fire. Because indifference is very, very dangerous. God's okay. I'm convinced. We have room for those who are young in the faith. Um, But don't be indifferent. There's a place for you here if you're wounded or discouraged. But don't be indifferent. God will dwell with those who are making progress no matter how slow. If you're making slow progress. But those who are content to make no progress, the Bible's very clear about that. It's called indifference. It's called lukewarmness. God rejects it. God moves on from that. God moves on. And many times we don't even know it. That's what's so scary. You read the story of Saul. The spirit of the Lord departed Saul and he knew it not. Very, very dangerous place to be. Now, I don't want to come down on indifference without offering the alternative. The alternative to indifference, if I had to sum it up in a word, it would be one word, zeal. Zeal. We think of zeal sometimes as something that only belongs to youth. Zeal is something that we all need to have, and it comes in all different forms, and it manifests itself in a lot of different ways, but we must have a zeal for the things of God. And some, when I say the word zeal, they start to think, oh, my lands, it's getting ready to get radical. That's a radical word. We're getting ready, you know, it's like, my lands, we're going to be doing jumping jacks here in a few minutes. But here's the deal. Zeal is just about doing one thing. It's about, I'm serious about one thing. I'm sold out to one thing. The psalmist says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's zeal. You read about that guy in the Old Testament. I forget his name. They were sinning in the camp, though, and this brother throws that javelin spear and spears those people. You remember that story? Maybe I'm the only one. Look it up. It's incredible. He spears him. And anyways, he was applauded because of the zeal of, of what had motivated him. He couldn't stand to see the house of God, the people of God, defiling themselves. And so he took matters into his own hands because he was so singularly focused on glorifying God. He just couldn't stand to see God's name run down because zeal had eaten him up. Corinth. Here's the reason we have to be zealous. Corinth isn't won by the church who is overcome by indifference. You can't, you can't be like the people that you're trying to convert to a different way of living. And that's exactly what indifference 
lends itself to. Like I said, in verse 8, we get the testimony that Paul, Paul took this bold action of zeal, moved out of the synagogue, moved to Justice's house next door, and it pays off. Because verse 8 says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. It was in that moment that Paul got his breakthrough. Because he decided, I'm not getting anywhere here, and I refuse to be sucked into it. I'm going to break away. They all know where they can find me. I'm right next door. I'm going to preach, keep preaching the same message. And he got a breakthrough. Crispus, his whole household, and many of the Corinthians were one. Now, I want to, I want to talk about the word that Paul got, because that's, that's just the friends that Paul had. Let me talk about the word that Paul got. But before I want to tell, talk about the word that Paul got, I want to take a second and wind the clock back and talk to you about Elijah for a minute. Uh, Paul reached an Elijah moment in, in his life. Elijah took the bold and zealous approach in 1 Kings chapter 18. He went to Mount Carmel. He issued a challenge. He got the prophets of Baal together. He said the God that answers by fire is the real God. He let them go first. They cut themselves, they worshiped, they danced, they played music, they made noise, they did all the stuff. Baal didn't answer because Baal doesn't exist. He's not powerful. And so Elijah comes in, sets up the sacrifice, prays a 10-second prayer. Fireball comes down from the sky, eats up the sacrifice, licks up the water around the sacrifice, and everybody is stunned because there's the answer. Jehovah is the real God. Elijah wins a major victory. All the prophets of Baal get killed that day. I mean, it is a breakthrough magnitude event. Just like Paul experienced when he went next door to Justice's house, he said, I've had enough. I have to imagine Elijah did the same thing. He said, I've had enough. We're going to have an ultimatum. We're going to have a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel. And the God that answers by fire is going to be the real God, and we're all going to serve him. Paul did the same thing. He says, enough is enough. We're not getting anywhere. I'm going to go next door. I'm going to preach my message. You guys can preach your message. And the God that answers by fire is the real God. And God sent the Holy Ghost, the fire, to Paul. So Elijah has this enormous victory at Mount Carmel, and he's riding this high. And then Jezebel puts a hit out on him. And she says, by God, I'm going to kill him. Ahab tells her what happened. Her husband says, this is what, did you hear what happened at Mount Carmel? And she says, I am so mad, I'm going to kill him. We're going to hunt him down, and he's going to die. So here he goes. Elijah's off to the races. He runs. I mean, he's running for his life, literally. He runs and runs and runs and runs. He's scared. It's real fear. I mean, like, Talking about emotion, talking about going from the top of the mountain down to the lowest valley. I mean, he's running for his life. He's got the army chasing him. He eventually finds a place to hide under a broom tree. It's like a bush. He crawls under this bush, and he's hiding there, and he's praying one of those most pitiful prayers to God. We've all probably prayed a pitiful prayer. He's praying one of those pitiful prayers. He's like, God, I hate this. Why don't you just take me? Just take me now. They're chasing me. They're going to kill me. It's going to be awful. Just take me. And God said, just calm down. I'm going to send an angel. He sends an angel. Angel gives him some food. He gets, a full, uh, he gets a full stomach, and then he goes down for a long nap. He gets a good night's sleep, and he wakes up, and the next day he's like, okay, maybe I don't want to die, but it's still bad. I'm still in danger. So he runs to Mount Horeb, okay? He runs to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. And he finds a, finds a cave, and he hides out in the cave. And God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah's like, I don't know. I'm scared, man. They're going to kill me. And that's when the whole story of the whirlwind and, all, and God's still small voice, and he has that moment with God where God gives him a word. You remember that story? God gives Elijah a word. And it charges Elijah back, Elijah back up. And Elijah comes back out of the wilderness and he goes back to where he's from and he's on his way. And it's at that moment that Elijah 
meets Elisha. And God gives him a friend. You see how some of the themes are overlapping? That's why I'm going to the other. Because I, I, I really think that what Paul is experiencing here is an Elijah moment. It's an Elijah moment. Paul has this enormous breakthrough. Many of the Corinthians come to faith in Jesus. He even wins Crispus and his household. He's even starting to get some prominence, some influencers, some people that he can start to have favor in the community. And he can start to have a presence for the gospel to be preached. Paul has one of those moments like Elijah has. He has success and breakthrough and victory. And in the middle of all that, he somehow starts to get discouraged again. He starts to wonder, is this all going to fall apart? Is this all just fake? Is this all just going to come apart at the seams? Right? I know that because God has to come down and speak to Paul in verse 10. After this major breakthrough where Paul ought to be on cloud nine, and he probably is for a little while, Paul starts to be fearful again. Paul starts to be discouraged again. And God has to come down and speak a word into Paul's life. And he tells Paul, he says, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And so he's able to, he, he's charged back up by that. He goes back out into the, into the fight and he spends a year and a half in Corinth. He spends longer in Corinth than he is able to spend really anywhere else on his missionary journeys. That's the effect that this word has on Paul's life. And as much as we need friends, we need to hear from God. As good as friends can be. And as much of a comfort as people like Priscilla and Aquila and Justice and all of his newfound friends there in Corinth must have been, there was still a sense of discouragement and fear that started overtaking Paul. And sometimes we just need to get alone with the Lord and let the Lord speak a word into our life. I want to say tonight what I've said on many occasions. It's possible that you can hear a word from God for yourself with no pulpit involved. You can hear a word from God in a setting like this. I hope you do. But brothers and sisters, there are times when we need to get alone with God. And we need to get a word from God. Not a word where God's, you think someone's giving you a new doctrine or showing you something that is contrary to the word of God. I'm talking about God speaking an encouragement to you. God giving you direction for a situation. God telling you that everything's going to be all right. We need those kind of words from God. And as nice as a text message is and as great as a phone call or a pat on the back from a friend may be, we need a word from God. If we're going to win this world. I'm talking about apostolic patterns and principles. To help us win the world that we're living in. They turned the world upside down. With this recipe. It was a friend. And a word. And a haircut. Sometimes in the middle of all of it. We forget that God can do something in the middle of all the opposition and all the trial, all the nastiness that we face, all the nonsense that we're having to wade through. Sometimes we get so concerned just duking it out and fighting the battle, we forget that God can be doing eight things over here. And I'm glad I'm not the only one because it happened to Paul. Because in the middle of this opposition that they started to face in Corinth, they drug everybody before the Roman proconsul, the Roman governor of the area. And they said, these people are they're acting out of line, they're breaking the law, they're teaching things that are contrary to the law. It's a mess, you need to do something about it. And the guy's name was Galeo, and he said, I am not doing anything about it. It's not even my business. It doesn't have anything to do with Roman law. It has everything to do with Jewish law. You guys are just going to have to deal with it. And the whole city was mad, not just the Jews, but the whole city was mad because this Jewish thing was getting out of control. And all the Greek people were so upset at what this was doing to their city and the fact that the Roman guy wouldn't do anything about it. They took matters into their own hands. And it says that the Greeks took the ruler of the synagogue and beat him. The guy's name was, I had to practice it, Sosthenes. 
Not sauce on the knees. Sosthenes. At least that's how I think you say it. That's the best I got. They take him and they beat the guy. You might think, well, man, what in the world can God possibly be doing in the middle of a... This sounds awful. This sounds bad. And it... I don't have a silver lining on that particular day. It was a bad day, brothers, sisters. It's a bad day. I don't see a happily ever after on that day. They just, they beat the guy up pretty bad. It was, it was a bad day for, for everybody. And you might ask, so what? What does this even matter? Well, bad week, we'll be so in the middle of the fight, and we'll forget that God is not like us. God can be doing eight different things over here on this other side that we don't even know about. You know what I read when I flip to 1 Corinthians? We're in Corinth, aren't we? I flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, is it the same Sosthenes? I don't have any proof for that. It's in the same city. I know that. It's Corinth. And for him to be, get named in the first verse of Paul's letter must have been a prominent Sosthenes, say someone who was previously the ruler of a synagogue. Sounds like Sosthenes, the guy who replaced Crispus after Crispus converted, they had to put a new guy in. His name was Sosthenes. Sounds like after he got the tar beat out of him, he converted and became a Christian himself. Was doing something in the middle of it all? You telling me that it might ju it just sounds like they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good? Don't ever underestimate the ability of God to do a miracle in the middle of a mess. Because that's exactly what happened in Corinth. You want to know what a haircut's about? Here's what the haircut's about. Verse 18. Verse 18. Says that after they left Corinth, he had spent 18 months in Corinth and he left Corinth. And he's headed back east. He's headed eventually to Jerusalem. And he's going to go to uh, Syrian Antioch and then he's just going to kind of leapfrog his way all the way back east towards Jerusalem. And so Paul remained a good while and he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria while Priscilla and Aquila were with him and he had his hair cut off at Synctria, for he had taken a vow. And that sentence is what sent me down the rabbit trail this week, uh, the rabbit hole. I found it fascinating that Paul got a haircut and we know about it. I just thought that was neat. You say, well, what's so special about the haircut? He was under a vow. He had been under a vow. And in those days, the Jewish people, uh, there's... There's a, uh, a section of the book of Numbers that describes something called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow. And in exceptional cases, the Nazarite vow would be something that someone would live out for life. I'm thinking of Samson and Samuel. It really didn't happen that way most of the time. Most of the time, a Nazarite vow was a temporary vow that someone would take, not for a week, but for an extended period of time. And it involved three things. One of them is they didn't cut their hair. Uh, another one is they didn't touch uh, dead things or graves, even relatives uh, and family members. And, uh, and then third, they abstained from all grape products, anything made out of grapes, so wine, any, anything like that. They abstained from all of that. And uh, the best guess, I, I, I studied this out, and it's just kind of a, a little comment that Luke drops into the book of Acts, but the best guess that everybody can... Uh, get to is that at some point during his time in Corinth, I think it's after he received the word from the Lord, uh, Paul put himself under this Nazarite vow. It was a way of consecrating himself. Brother Deaver, you asked a good question earlier about what would be the modern equivalent of uh, shaking the dust off of our feet or something like that. Uh, I don't really think there's a direct one-to-one -one equivalence with that. I think we just, you know, we had that conversation earlier and it was a, it was a good uh, Right, right, right. Not the same thing as ghosting somebody. Um, 
but yes, a polite dismissal and, and, a, and a changing of the relationship. Um, I, I, I think the same thing applies here. I think this Nazarite vow business, I don't think there's a direct one-to-one equivalence. Uh, I don't think it's the same thing as going on uh, a week's fast. I think a week's fast is significant, but I don't think, it's, I don't think you can make a direct one-to-one correlation between the two because a lot of times this was for an extended period, months or even uh, a year or two, they would be in this Nazarite vow and, uh, and these are significant things. I mean, there, there's no great products. There's no touching dead things or bodies or uh, graves, even for family members. And there's no haircut. So this was something that had inward and outward uh, type of features to it. And I don't think we have, I was talking to my dad about it a couple days ago because we were telling ourselves, what, is, what would be something that would be comparable to us today? And I told him, I said, I, I just said, I think we just have to make something up um, out of thin air. Like, uh, I'm going to say, Brother Walker, in 2024, I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat red meat. Uh, I'm only going to drink water. And I don't know. I'm only going to wear brown. I don't know. I don't know. You know, and I can't wear socks. I don't know, you know, I don't know. It, I mean, and I don't mean to make light of it, but we really, I only say that because I don't think we have a modern equivalent to it. This was something that was, that was of that kind of commitment level. And Paul put himself under that uh, Nazarite vow, and I think it was for the rest of the duration that he was there in Corinth, and I think it was, it was, a, con- it was a personal consecration that he made. He said, this is important work. God is with me. I have friends, and I'm going to really, I'm, I'm going to make a consecration for the duration of, for as long as God has me in this season, this is the way I'm going to live my life. And uh, I, think, I think the spirit behind it is captured in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If, Sister Kelly, if you'd come to the keys. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, No one engaged in warfare entangles him, himself, himself with the affairs of this life. That he may... I said it a little while ago. You can't be like the city you're trying to reach and hope to make a difference and convert them. If you really want to make a difference... And be about kingdom work. It takes consecration. When Paul left Corinth, the first pit stop they made, one of these towns that I can't pronounce, is he got a haircut. He got a haircut because he was ending that particular season of consecration that he was in. And I think that more than anything else, as, as many, maybe you had a takeaway tonight from when we talked about friends and friendship and how important that is, and I, I don't want to diminish that whatsoever. And maybe you had a takeaway from when we talked about receiving a word from God, and you've got a newly ignited hunger to say, I, I want to receive a word from God. I, I want to get into my prayer room. And I, I'm going to stay there until I hear from God. I need a word of direction for my life. And maybe that resonated. Maybe that's exactly where you feel like you are right now. Maybe that's exactly what you need. But what I feel like more than anything else is that it might just be to a level of consecration that maybe you've never lived in before. What can I do to position myself, to consecrate myself, for serious ministry. You say, Brother Dustin, I feel like I have a word. I feel like I have a friend. What is a level of consecration that I can make that matches what I see God doing all around me, the opportunity that God has placed me in the middle of? You say, Pastor, it's, it's not even January 1st yet. Correct? It's not. I know we do a lot of that around the first of the year. What about November 29th? How's that feel? What if somebody were to lift up their hands today? What if somebody were to find a place and kneel down in prayer and whatever God's dropped in your spirit and told you, you know what, you need to separate from that. You need to cut that out. You need to do this. And if you'll make a few of these changes, you'll be able to walk and live in a dimension of God's power and anointing that maybe you haven't felt in a while. What if God did that in a place on November 20th? Can God do that? 
Can God do that? Let's stand across this place right now. Here's what I know, and I want to have a time of prayer tonight, but here's what I know. I know what God's opinion is of Poplar Bluff is this. Bluff City, I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. You know what Jesus said? John chapter 10, he said, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. I think there's some that God's wanting to bring into the church. We've been talking about one at a time. I believe there's more that God wants to add to the church. Do you believe that there's some that God wants to add to the church and God is reaching for? What if somebody would just say, you know what, I'm going to get more serious than I've ever been about living for God and doing the will of God. I'm going to consecrate myself and dedicate myself to the things of God. Let's lift up our hands all over this room right now. Because I think the Holy Ghost is calling and saying, you know, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Paul? What do you want from me? What is your aim? These altars are open. I want to invite somebody to step out of where they are and find a place of, of prayer anywhere around this sanctuary and just a place to where we can respond to the word of the Lord and say, God, I don't want to wait. I don't need to wait until a particular time of year or a date on the calendar. But God, I want to do something for you right now. Lord, I'm in Corinth. I'm in, I, I feel maybe even I walk into my home, God, and it's just, it's overloaded with sin. It's overloaded with wickedness. And there's so many things that are surrounding me. God, I want to make a difference. I want to do something for you, God. I may be the only one, but Lord, I think you're going to link me up with a friend. God, you're going to give me a fresh word. Lord, there's going to be a level of consecration that I reach for, Jesus. Come on, would somebody respond to the word of the Lord? I don't know what the Holy Ghost is doing in your life right now. I can't see beyond the visible into the invisible and see how the Lord is dealing with your heart. But whatever the Lord is dealing with you, please don't put it off and say it's just another Wednesday night. It's not even the first of the year. It's not even the time of year where I make those kind of changes traditionally. Would somebody just reach for God and say, God, I want you to do a work through me. Lord, I want you to do something.